Welcome back to Fast Asleep. You have found the right time and the right place to be soothed to sleep. Hey, if you haven't heard part one of this intriguing F. Scott Fitzgerald story, it's okay. Just jump back one episode for the start. We are about to get into the second of four imaginative parts. Uh, are they realistic? Uh-uh, no, they are not. Fitzgerald's fantasy continues. Uh, but be ready for a little bit of darkness. Tuck in, everybody, for the diamond as big as the Ritz. morning. As he awoke, he perceived drowsily that the room had at the same moment become dense with sunlight. The ebony panels of one wall had slid aside on a sort of track, leaving his chamber half open to the day. A large servant in a white uniform stood beside his bed. Uh, good evening, muttered John, summoning his brains from the wild places. Good morning, sir. Are you ready for your bath, sir? Oh, oh, don't get up. I'll put you in. If you'll just unbutton your pajamas. There, thank you, sir. John lay quietly as his pajamas were removed. He was amused and delighted. He expected to be lifted like a child by this large man who was tending him, but nothing of the sort happened. Instead, he felt the bed tilt up slowly on its side. He began to roll, startled at first, in the direction of the wall. But when he reached the wall, its drapery gave way and sliding two yards farther down a fleecy incline, he plumped gently into water the same temperature as his body. He looked down. The runway or rollway on which he had arrived had folded gently back into place. He had been projected into another chamber and was sitting in a sunken bath with his head just above the level of the floor. All about him, lining the walls of the room and the sides and bottom of the bath itself was a blue aquarium. And gazing through the crystal surface on which he sat, he could see fish swimming among amber lights and even gliding without curiosity past his outstretched toes, which were separated from them only by the thickness of the crystal. From overhead, sunlight came down through sea-green glass. I suppose, sir, that you'd like hot rose water and soap suds this morning, sir, and perhaps cold salt water to finish? The man was standing beside him. Ah, uh, yes, agreed John, smiling inanely. As you please. 
any idea of ordering this bath according to his own meager standards of living would have been priggish and not a little wicked. The man pressed a button and warm rain began to fall, apparently from overhead, but really, so John discovered after a moment, from a fountain, a fountain arrangement nearby. The water turned to a pale rose color, and jets of liquid soap spurted into it from four miniature walrus heads at the corners of the bath. In a moment, a dozen little paddle wheels fixed to the sides had churned the mixture into a radiant rainbow of pink foam, which enveloped him softly with its delicious lightness and burst in shining rosy bubbles here and there about him. Shall I turn on the moving picture machines, sir? suggested the man deferentially. There's one good comedy in this machine today, or I can put in a serious piece in a moment if you prefer it. Uh, no thanks, answered John, politely but firmly. He was enjoying his bath too much to desire any distraction. Ah, but distraction came. In a moment, he was listening intently to the sound of flutes from just outside, flutes dripping a melody that was like a waterfall, cool and green as the room itself, accompanying a frothy piccolo in play more fragile than the lace of suds, the suds that covered and charmed him. After a cold salt water bracer and a cold fresh finish, he stepped out and into a fleecy robe, and upon a couch covered with the same material, he was rubbed with oil, alcohol, and spice. Later, he sat in a voluptuous chair while he was shaved and his hair was trimmed. Mr. Percy is waiting in your sitting room, said the man, when these operations were finished. My name is Jigsome, Mr. Unger, sir. I am to see to Mr. Unger every morning. John walked out into the brisk sunshine of his living room, where he found breakfast waiting for him, and Percy, gorgeous in white kid knickerbockers, baggy-kneed pants, smoking in an easy chair. This is a story of the Washington family as Percy sketched it for John during breakfast. The father of the present Mr. Washington had been a Virginian, a direct descendant of George Washington and Lord Baltimore. At the close of the Civil War, he was a 25-year-old colonel with a played-out plantation and about a thousand dollars in gold. Fitz Norman Culpepper Washington, for that was the young colonel's name, decided to present the Virginia estate to his younger brother, 
and go west. He selected two dozen of the most faithful servants, who of course worshipped him, and bought 25 tickets to the west where he intended to take out land in their names and start a sheep and cattle ranch. When he had been in Montana for less than a month and things were going very poorly indeed, he stumbled on his great discovery. He had lost his way when riding in the hills, and after a day without food, he began to grow hungry. As he was without his rifle, he was forced to pursue a squirrel, and in the course of the pursuit, he noticed that it was carrying something shiny in its mouth. Just before it vanished into its hole, for Providence did not intend that this squirrel should alleviate his hunger, <laughs> It dropped its burden. Sitting down to consider the situation, Fitznorman's eye was caught by a gleam in the grass beside him. In ten seconds, he had completely lost his appetite and gained $100,000. The squirrel, which had refused with annoying persistence to become food, had made him a present of a large and perfect diamond. Late that night, he found his way to camp, and 12 hours later, all the males among his servants were back by the squirrel hole, digging furiously at the side of the mountain. He told them he had discovered a rhinestone mine, and as only one or two of them had ever seen even a small diamond before, they believed him without question. When the magnitude of his discovery became apparent to him, he found himself in a quandary. The mountain was a diamond. It was literally nothing else but solid diamond. Well, he filled four saddlebags full of glittering samples and started on horseback for St. Paul. There, he managed to dispose of half a dozen small stones. Well, when he tried a larger one, a storekeeper fainted and Fitznorman was arrested as a public disturber. He escaped from jail and caught the train for New York, where he sold a few medium-sized diamonds and received in exchange about $200,000 in gold. But he did not dare to produce any exceptional gems. In fact, he left New York just in time. Tremendous excitement had been created in jewelry circles not so much by the size of his diamonds as by their appearance in the city from mysterious sources. <laughs> Wild rumors became current that a diamond mine had been discovered in uh, the Catskills on the Jersey coast on Long Island. 
beneath Washington Square. <laughs> Excursion trains packed with men carrying picks and shovels began to leave New York hourly, bound for various neighboring Eldorados. But by that time, young Fitznorman ah, was on his way back to Montana. By the end of a fortnight, he had estimated that the diamond in the mountain was approximately equal in quantity to all the rest of the diamonds known to exist in the world. There was no valuing it by any regular computation, however, for it was one solid diamond. And if it were offered for sale, not only would the bottom fall out of the market, but also if the value should vary with its size in the usual arithmetical progression, there would not be enough gold in the world to buy a tenth part of it. And what could anyone do with a diamond that size? It was an amazing predicament. He was, in one sense, the richest man that ever lived. And yet, was he worth anything at all? If his secret should transpire, there was no telling to what measures the government might resort in order to prevent a panic in gold as well as in jewels. Well, they might take over the claim immediately and institute a monopoly. There was no alternative. He must market his mountain in secret. He sent south for his younger brother and put him in charge of his servants. Fitznorman himself set out for foreign parts with $100,000 and two trunks filled with rough diamonds of all sizes. He sailed for Russia in a Chinese junk, and six months after his departure from Montana, he was in St. Petersburg. He took obscure lodgings and called immediately upon the court jeweler, announcing that he had a diamond for the Tsar. He remained in St. Petersburg for two weeks in constant danger of being murdered, living from lodging to lodging and afraid to visit his trunks more than mm, three or four times during the whole fortnight. On his promise to return in a year with larger and finer stones, he was allowed to leave for India. Before he left, however, the court treasurers had deposited to his credit in American banks the sum of $15 million under four different aliases. He returned to America in 1868, having been gone a little over two years. He had visited the capitals of 22 countries and talked with five emperors, 11 kings, three princes, a shah, a khan, 
and a sultan. At that time, Fitznorman estimated his own wealth at one billion dollars. One fact worked consistently against the disclosure of his secret. No one of his larger diamonds remained in the public eye for a week before being invested with a history of enough fatalities, amours, revolutions, and wars to have occupied it from the days of the first Babylonian Empire. From 1870 until his death in 1900, the history of Fitznorman Washington was a long epic in gold. There were side issues, of course. He evaded the surveys. He married a Virginia lady by whom he had a single son and he was compelled, due to a series of unfortunate complications, to murder his brother, whose unfortunate habit of drinking himself into an indiscreet stupor had, uh, well, several times endangered their safety. But very few other murders stained these happy years of progress and expansion. Just before he died, he changed his policy and with all but a few million dollars of his outside wealth, he bought up rare minerals mm -hmm, in bulk, which he deposited in the safety vaults of banks all over the world, marked as bric-a-brac. His son, Braddock Tarleton Washington, followed this policy on an even more tensive scale. The minerals were converted into the rarest of all elements, radium, so that the equivalent of a billion dollars in gold, well, could be placed in a receptacle no bigger than a cigar box. When Fitznorman had been dead three years, his son Braddock decided that ah, the business had gone far enough. The amount of wealth that he and his father had taken out of the mountain was beyond all exact computation. He kept a notebook and cipher in which he set down the approximate quantity of radium in each of the thousand banks he patronized and recorded the alias under which it was held. And then he did a very simple thing. He sealed up the mine. He sealed up the mine. <sighs> what had been taken out of it would support all the Washingtons yet to be born in unparalleled luxury for generations. His one care must be the protection of his secret lest in the possible panic attendant on its discovery, he should be reduced with all the property holders in the world to utter poverty. This, this 
was the family among whom John T. Unger was staying. This was the story he heard in his silver-walled living room the morning after his arrival. After breakfast, John found his way out, the great marble entrance, and looked curiously at the scene before him. Ah, oh, the whole valley, from the Diamond Mountain to the steep granite cliff five miles away, still gave off a breath of golden haze which hovered idly above the fine sweep of lawns and lakes and gardens. Here and there, clusters of elms made delicate groves of shade, contrasting strangely with the tough masses of pine forest that held the hills in a grip of dark blue-green. Even as John looked, he saw three fawns in single file patter out from one clump about a half mile away and disappear with awkward gaiety into the black-ribbed half-light of another. John would not have been surprised to see a goat foot piping his way among the trees or to catch a glimpse of pink nymph skin and flying yellow hair between the greenest of the green leaves. In some such cool hope, he descended the marble steps disturbing faintly the sleep of two silky Russian wolfhounds at the bottom, and set off along a walk of white and blue brick while that seemed to lead in no particular direction. Ah, he was enjoying himself well as much as he was able. It is a youth's felicity, as well as its insufficiency, that it can never live in the present, but must always be measuring up the day against its own radiantly imagined future. Flowers and gold, girls and stars, they are only prefigurations and prophecies of that incomparable, unattainable, young dream. John rounded a soft corner where the massed rose bushes filled the air with heavy scent and struck off across a park toward a patch of moss under some trees. He had never lain upon moss, and he wanted to see whether it was really soft enough to justify the use of its name as an adjective. And then he saw a girl coming toward him over the grass, she was the most beautiful person he had ever seen. Well, she was dressed in a white little gown that came just below her knees and a wreath of mignonettes clasped with blue slices of sapphire bound up her hair. Her pink bare feet scattered the dew before them as she came. She was younger than John, not more than 16. Hello, she cried softly. I'm Kissman. Oh, she was much more than that to John. 
already. He advanced toward her, scarcely moving as he drew near, lest he should tread on her bare toes. You haven't met me, said her soft voice. Her blue eyes added, Oh, and you missed a great deal. You met my sister, Jasmine, last night. Ah, I was sick with lettuce poisoning, went on her soft voice. And her eyes continued. And when I'm sick, I'm sweet. And when I'm well, mm-hmm. You have made an enormous impression on me, said John's eyes. And I'm not so slow myself. Uh, how do you do? said his voice. I hope you're better this morning. You darling, added his eyes tremulously. John observed that they'd been walking along the path. On her suggestion, they sat down together upon that moss, the softness of which he failed to determine. Now, he was critical about women. A single defect, a thick ankle, a hoarse voice, a glass eye, was enough to make him utterly indifferent. And here, for the first time in his life, he was beside a girl who seemed to him, well, the incarnation of physical perfection. Are you from the East? asked Kissman, with charming interest. No, answered John simply. I'm from Hades. Well, either she had never heard of Hades, or she could think of no pleasant comment to make upon it, for she did not discuss it further. I'm going east to school this fall, she said. Do you think I'll like it? I'm going to New York to Miss Bulge's. Oh, it's very strict. But you see, over the weekends... I'm going to live at home with the family in our New York house because, well, father heard that the girls had to go walking two by two. Yeah, your father wants you to be proud, observed John. We are, she answered, her eyes shining with dignity. None of us has ever been punished. Father said we never should be. Why, once, when my sister Jasmine was a little girl, she pushed him downstairs, and he, well, he just got up and limped away. Mother was, well, a little startled, continued Kisman, when she heard that you were from, well, from where you are from, you know. She said that when she was a young girl, well, then, you see, oh, she's a Spaniard, and she's old-fashioned. <clears throat> Do you spend much time out here? asked John, to conceal the fact that he was somewhat hurt by this remark. It seemed an unkind allusion to his provincialism. Percy and Jasmine and I are here every summer, but next summer, Jasmine is going to Newport. She is uh, coming out in London. A year from this fall, she'll be presented at court. Oh, uh, do you know, began John hesitantly, you are much more sophisticated than I thought you were when I first saw you. Oh, oh, oh no, I'm not, 
she exclaimed hurriedly. Oh, I wouldn't think of being. I think that sophisticated young people are, well, terribly common. Don't you? Oh, no, I'm not at all, really. And if you say I am, I'm going to cry. Oh, she was so distressed that her lip was trembling. John was impelled to protest. Oh, I, I didn't mean that. I only said it to, to tease you. Because I wouldn't, I mean, I, w I wouldn't mind if I were, she persisted. But I'm not. I'm very innocent and girlish. Why, I never smoke or drink or read anything, well, except poetry. I know scarcely any mathematics or chemistry. Oh, I dress very simply. In fact, I scarcely dress at all. I think sophisticated, ooh, that's the last thing you can say about me. I believe that girls ought to enjoy their youths in a wholesome way. I do too, said John heartily. Kissman was cheerful again. She smiled at him and a stillborn tear dripped from the corner of one blue eye. I like you, she whispered intimately. Are you going to spend all your time with Percy while you're here, or will you be nice to me? Just think, I'm absolutely fresh ground. I've never had a boy in love with me in all my life. I've never been allowed even to see boys alone, except Percy. I came all the way out here into this grove, hoping to run into you where the family wouldn't be around. Deeply flattered, John bowed from the hips as he had been taught at dancing school in Hades. We'd better go now, said Kissman sweetly. I have to be with Mother at eleven. You haven't asked me to kiss you once. I thought boys always did that nowadays. John drew himself up proudly. Some of them do, he answered, but not me. Girls don't do that sort of thing in Hades. Side by side, they walked back toward the house. John stood facing Mr. Braddock Washington in the full sunlight. The elder man was about 40, with a proud, vacuous face, intelligent eyes, and a robust figure. In the mornings, he smelt of horses, the best horses. He carried a plain walking stick of gray birch with a single large opal for a grip. He and Percy were showing John around. The servants' quarters are there. His walking stick indicated a cloister of marble on their left that ran in graceful gothic along the side of the mountain. In my youth, I was distracted for a while from the business of life by a period of absurd idealism, and during that time, they lived in luxury. For instance, I equipped every one of their rooms with a tile bath. Well, I suppose 
ventured John with an ingratiating laugh, <laughs> that they use the bathtubs to keep coal in. Mr. Schnellitzer Murphy told me once that the opinions of Mr. Schnellitzer Murphy are of little importance, I should imagine, interrupted Braddock Washington coldly. My servants did not keep coal in their bathtubs. They had orders to bathe every day, and they did. If they hadn't, I might have ordered a sulfuric acid shampoo. I discontinued the baths, though, for quite another reason. Several of them caught cold and died. Water is not good for certain people, except as a beverage. John laughed, uh, and then decided to just nod his head in sober agreement. Braddock Washington made him uncomfortable. All these servants are descendants of the ones my father brought north with him. There are about 250 now. You notice that they've lived so long apart from the world that their original dialect has become an almost indistinguishable patois. We bring a few of them up to speak English, my secretary and two or three of the house servants. And this is the golf course, he continued as they strolled along the velvet winter grass. It's all a green, you see. No fairway, no rough, no hazards. He smiled pleasantly at John. Um, any men in the cage, father? asked Percy suddenly. Braddock Washington stumbled and let forth an involuntary curse. <laughs> well, one less than there should be, he ejaculated darkly and then added after a moment, we've, uh, we've had difficulties. Oh, mother was telling me, exclaimed Percy. That Italian teacher, oh, a ghastly error, said Braddock Washington angrily. But of course, there's a good chance that we may have got him. Perhaps he fell somewhere in the woods or stumbled over a cliff. And then there's always the pro probability that if he did get away, his story wouldn't be believed. Eh, nevertheless, I've had two dozen men looking for him in different towns around here. Oh, and no luck. Some. Fourteen of them reported to my agent that they'd each killed a man answering to that description. Uh, but of course, it was probably only the reward they were after. And then he stopped. They had come to a large cavity in the earth about the circumference of a merry-go-round and covered by a strong iron grating. Braddock Washington beckoned to John and pointed his cane down through the grating. John stepped to the edge and gazed. Immediately, his ears were assailed by a wild clamor from below. Come on down to hell. Hello, kiddo. How's the air up there? Hey, throw us a rope. Got an old donut buddy or a couple of secondhand sandwiches? Say, fella, if you'll push down that guy you're with, We'll show you a quick disappearance scene. Past him one for me, will ya? 
too dark to see clearly into the pit below, but John could tell from the coarse optimism and rugged vitality of the remarks and voices that they proceeded from middle-class Americans of the more spirited type. Then Mr. Washington put out his cane and touched a button in the grass, and the scene below sprang into light. These are some adventurous mariners who had the misfortune to discover El Dorado, he remarked. Below them, there had appeared a large hollow in the earth shaped like the interior of a bowl. The sides were steep and apparently of polished glass, and on its slightly concave surface stood about two dozen men, clad in the half-costume, half-uniform of aviators. Their upturned faces lit with wrath, with malice, with despair, with cynical humor, were covered by long growths of beard. But with the exception of a few who had pined perceptibly away, they seemed to be a well-fed, healthy lot. Braddock Washington drew a garden chair to the edge of the pit and sat down. Well, how are you boys? he inquired genially. And that's where we end for now.